Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A 22-year-old university student heads out alone into the darkness. I don't think she was afraid to walk home. We know now she should have been. The next morning, two hunters stumble onto her lifeless body. We had a case where a female had been strangled, raped, and then set on fire. The co-ed's brutal murder leaves a college town gripped with fear. The climate of the university changed. Students were told to stay together and to not walk around after dark alone. And a killer who could be anyone. Were we dealing with somebody that was from here? Or were they just passing through? I mean, we just didn't know. That's pretty scary. How well do you know your neighbors? What lies behind the white picket fences? Overlooking the majestic Oregon mountain range, Las Cruces, New Mexico is a southwestern town rich in cultural diversity, boasting a unique blend of open spaces, friendly neighborhoods, and a bustling downtown area, not to mention some of the best Mexican food north of the border. Las Cruces is a very small community. Uh, it doesn't take very long to drive from one end of it to the other. And so people there know each other very well, and it's relatively quiet. Quiet, that is, until you get an average of 25,000 college students starting school every fall. In the heart of Las Cruces, New Mexico State University offers students not only a top-notch education, but their first steps towards adulthood. New Mexico State University is a good university. More so than just the academics, though. It's, it's a safe university. There's a lot of uh, school pride that comes from that area. 
So, when J.N. Sapich's eldest daughter, Katie, tells her family she's attending New Mexico State for her undergraduate degree, J.N. and her husband couldn't be more pleased. Katie loved New Mexico State. She loved the professors. Katie had friends in her classes. She joined a sorority, made a lot of friends in her sorority. Katie just always was making new friends and meeting new people. And during her senior year, one of those new friends is an attractive biochemistry major named Joe Stoltz. I think I first heard about Joe very shortly after they started dating. Katie told me that she was pretty crazy about Joe that she thought he might be the one, that she thought there was definitely a future with him. After several months of dating, Jan thought that future together might not be too far off either. Katie showed me this diamond ring that Joe had bought her, and she was very excited about it. And I said, oh, Katie, is, is that some sort of engagement ring? And she said, are you kidding? If I get an engagement ring, it's going to be a lot bigger than this. But she was proud of it. The future is looking bright for 22-year-old Katie Sepich when she graduates from New Mexico State. And her relationship with Joe continues to blossom. I think she felt like her life was beginning to take its course, and she was very happy. But in the summer of 2003, both Katie and Joe's lives are changing. Katie decides to return to New Mexico State for her master's degree while Joe moves back home to work at the family business. Joe was living in Gallup and Katie was living in Las Cruces. Katie was kind of sad that he had moved away. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Well, that and romantic rendezvous, which is what is planned Labor Day weekend 2003. Joe was going to be in Las Cruces that weekend and she was excited that she could see him. But this romantic weekend together is about to end in tragedy. Saturday, August 30th, 2003, is supposed to be a night of fun. Katie and Joe are planning to attend a party that evening, after Katie finishes her waitressing shift. Katie's co-worker and friend, Veronica Cordova, is also excited about the big bash. The day of the party, Katie and I both were working the evening shift. We got off, went home, got ready, and then we went to a party up in the high range area. Like most college festivities, the party rages into the wee hours of the morning. We were there pretty late, and I I had something to do early in the morning, so I called it a night. The last time I saw Katie, she was looking for a purse. She sounded tired, like she just wanted to leave. She was done for the night. The next day, J.N. Sepich gets a call that forever changes her life. It was about 2.15 and the phone rang, and it was Katie's roommate. She called to see if I had talked to Katie that day. And I said, no, and she said, well, we can't find her. And that's when she told me that Katie had walked out of the party the night before. Both Katie's roommate and her boyfriend, Joe, along with most of the partygoers, had all spent the night at the party. So no one realized Katie hadn't come home until the next morning. And she said, Jan, we've even called all of the hospitals to see maybe if she was there, and she's not. Within the hour, Katie's roommate and her boyfriend, Joe, file a missing persons report. I don't know how to describe this, but I had a feeling in the pit of my stomach. 
I immediately knew that something was horribly wrong. Captain Robert Jones of the Doña Ana County Sheriff's Office is getting ready to hang up his badge after 21 years on the force. I was probably uh, a little over a year from retirement. He's looking forward to finally having more time to do the things he loves. Not that he doesn't love the job. My plans for retirement, hunting, fishing, metal detecting. I like to collect antiques and uh, just spending time with my grandchildren. But on Sunday, August 31st, when two hunters make a gruesome discovery in a nearby landfill, retirement is the last thing on Jones's mind. I was told that we had a, uh, a female body at the old landfill, and there was no identification on the body. It had appeared that she had been there maybe a, maybe a day or a little bit less than a day. For the officers on scene, one thing is clear. This Jane Doe didn't die of natural causes. She was laying face down. She was semi-nude. Her pants had been removed. They were laying between her legs. It looks like sexual assault. And this young woman fought for her life until the very end. She had scrape marks where she had been fighting with the person that had killed her. She had uh, wounds on her, on some of her fingers where she had apparently grabbed the individual. The cause of death appears to be manual strangulation, and officers are pretty sure this is not where the victim died. There was no indications on the ground around her that the struggle had taken place anywhere in that area. It indicated to us that she had been killed somewhere else. But it goes beyond just dumping the body at the landfill. There's something else even more disturbing. She had some, some burns on her back and on her arm. The burns suggest the victim was set on fire after being disposed of. We felt that a liquid had been poured on her to set her on fire in an attempt to destroy evidence. Lucky for investigators, this attempt failed. The fire didn't last very long. It, 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 it basically burned her back some and her, and her arm and then went out. It doesn't take long before the Doña Ana County Sheriff's Office makes a possible connection between the body and Katie Sepich's missing persons report, filed two miles away at the Las Cruces Police Department only a few hours earlier. Katie's father was on his way from Carlsbad, and once he arrived, he went and viewed the body and, and identified Katie. When Dave got home that night, he told me that when they pulled back that sheet, and he had to look at her face. He said that the pain was so intense that he thought he would not be able to take another breath. And no, no father should ever have to do that. No father should ever have to do that. For the Sepiches, a nightmare has begun, and they won't rest until Katie's killer is brought to justice. We wanted to know who had done this, who could have done this, and we wanted to stop him from doing it to others. The missing persons case is now officially a homicide investigation. Police must act fast. There was an individual that was running loose that had already killed a 22-year-old female for no reason, and that it, there was a very good possibility that he would do it again.
Las Cruces, New Mexico, is a town that boasts an average of 350 days of sunshine a year. Bad weather rarely comes to this college town. But when word begins to spread about the murder of 22-year-old Katie Sepich, it casts a dark cloud of fear over the once bright and sunny town. In a town like Las Cruces, these kinds of things don't happen often, um, if at all. Veteran TV journalist Ben Swan has reported a lot of bad news over the years at the anchor's desk. But nothing like this. The climate of the university changed. People were scared. People were concerned about what time they would be out, whether they should be alone, who was watching them. And the Doña Ana County Sheriff's Office fear the students have reason to be scared. Anytime you have a homicide like this, you're always worried that the killer would strike again. The pressure in this case was almost unbearable. And the pressure of the job can definitely take its toll on law enforcement. We do this job to, to fight for those people that can no longer fight for themselves. Lucky for Detective Mark Myers of the Las Cruces PD, his active lifestyle gives him an outlet to deal with the stress. I mean, when you're out on the bike, I mean, you can kind of leave everything else at the office, just concentrate on, on being outdoors, and, and it really helps to keep the stress down. And obviously stress is a, is a killer when it comes to this job. But stress isn't the only killer Myers has to worry about. He's handpicked to work alongside the Doña Ana County Sheriff's Office to hunt down the killer loose in Las Cruces. Captain Jones and I worked uh, with the specific intent that Katie's case be worked full-time until it was solved. And they start by going back through the information given in the original missing persons report, filed by Katie's roommate and Katie's boyfriend, Joe Stoltz. Joe said that him and Katie had been out partying and they had been there for a while. And then all of a sudden he knew that she was gone from the party. Joe just assumed that she had walked home just about a mile from where the party was to her residence. We started retracing her steps right away. We didn't know in the very beginning whether she made it in the house or not. Katie left the party house, which is down this way, came up Los Misioneros, turned the corner here on the Santo Domingo. When we knocked on every door between there from the party to her house, asking if anybody had heard anything, seen anything. No, nobody really reported seeing or hearing anything out of the ordinary that morning. And what they find outside her house suggests Katie may have made it home, but never made it inside. Her bedroom window was still locked, but the screen had been removed. It was just laying up against the side of the house. It looks like the killer took the screen off as he was trying to force his way in. Or does it? Detectives have a different theory. Joe said she left her purse, her keys, and her cell phone at the party, so it was the only way she could get in was through her window. They speculate that Katie was attacked trying to break into her own home. At the side of the house, we found, you know, Katie's shoes, and they weren't neatly placed there. One of them was slightly under a bush, the other one was more near the window, almost almost like they were kicked off during a struggle. And one last clue puts it all together. A disturbance in a gravel bed at the side of the house. There was actually an impression in the gravel 
where where Katie had been held down there. It was pretty eerie because you could almost see the outline of her body in the rocks. From there, detectives believe the killer drove her body to the landfill to cover his tracks. The question now becomes, was it a random attack or was it someone she knew? We felt that there was a possibility that one of the persons that was at the party could have seen her walked out, see her walking outside, or just simply followed her home and maybe responsible for her homicide. Investigators attempt to round up everyone who attended the party that evening. But that's easier said than done. Trying to get interviews with everybody from the party was extremely difficult. It was a holiday weekend, and a lot of them had left by the time that we'd found Katie's body. Finally, after tracking down a few of the partygoers, detectives soon discover Katie's boyfriend left out one important detail about what happened the night she went missing. We learned that Katie had seen Joe kissing another girl. She was upset there had been some words exchanged. I think everybody was aware of the, the argument because it caused a little ruckus at the party. Which is not what Katie's boyfriend, Joe, originally told police, or Katie's mother, for that matter. I asked Joe why she had left the party. I said, why would she do that? And I asked Joe if they had had an argument, and he said no. It looks bad, and it's about to get worse. He did admit to trying to go after her to make sure she got home okay. Joe said that he, he simply drove by in the front, that he never got out to go in the house. Well, I mean, why go over there and not get out and knock on the door? If you're really going to check on her, you know, check on her. But it's more than just a half-hearted attempt to check on his girlfriend's well-being. Joe puts himself there at the right time of the abduction. And there's something else suspicious about Joe's actions upon his return to the party. We had other witnesses that had told us that Katie's phone was ringing in her purse while Joe was holding it under his arm. He knew that he had Katie's phone, yet he, he continued to call it till 7.30, 10 o'clock in the morning throughout the day until her body was found. He's calling her cell phone when he knows darn well he's got it. Police have a theory. Kind of felt like he might be setting up an alibi for himself. He wanted to appear like the concerned boyfriend, but instead, he's looking pretty darn guilty. Joe has some explaining to do. After Joe's first interview, he uh, became uncooperative. He wouldn't talk to us anymore. When I was told that he was refusing to cooperate, I remember feeling like I had been kicked in the stomach because this was a man that supposedly loved my daughter. Joe's looking like a bad boyfriend, but is he a murderer? He was the last person that had seen her. He refused to cooperate with us. There's too many times you see a crime like this that happens in a heat of passion. I was convinced that uh, Joe was our guy. And it shouldn't be hard to prove. Within days of Katie's murder, the medical examiner is able to obtain the killer's DNA. The DNA that was removed from Katie's body was in three separate locations, and it was one individual. I think the most damning part of it was the DNA that was under her fingernails, because it was obviously somebody that she fought with. All that's left is comparing Joe's DNA with the DNA found on Katie's body. But there's a problem. Not only has Joe left town, his lawyer is making it next to impossible 
for police to get the one thing they need. Joe had refused at this point to give us a DNA sample. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Danger lurks in the American landscape. No one in their right mind would be out here, which makes it the perfect place to kill. Kill someone. Introducing Hot and Deadly from ID, your podcast for classic American true crime served with a side of biscuits and gravy. On each episode, you'll hear some of ID's most shocking stories of murder and betrayal, from the mystery of a preacher shot and killed by a bow and arrow to a former prom queen gone missing and found murdered. Listen to Hot and Deadly on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The college years are supposed to be one of the best times of a young adult's life. It's a carefree time where the world seems right at your fingertips. But for the students at New Mexico State University, a new reality is setting in. Katie's murder was very hard for the university and it was very hard for the community. Uh, it affected people in the ways that most of these kinds of violent crimes will where people begin to be very cautious about their surroundings, where people are not as trusting as they were before this happened. And the circumstances surrounding Katie Sepich's murder is fodder for the evening news. Katie's boyfriend, Joe, was not cooperating with the investigation. He was not wanting to talk to the media at all. What we saw was a guy who literally ran across the state and went home and got an attorney, and, and that made him look very guilty. And Katie's parents are forced to agree. Maybe he had something to do with her death. I couldn't understand why someone who was innocent wouldn't want to help. With Joe Stoltz refusing to give up his DNA, police begin the lengthy process of trying to obtain it through legal methods. But that will take some time. With the clock ticking, 
investigators need to cover their bases and begin looking into other possible suspects and scenarios. At the same time, we've got other people out there trying to track down all the registered sex offenders in that area. We put a nationwide teletype out asking for any type of similar type crimes to contact us if they had a crime that matched that description or something close. They also try to match Katie's killer to other unsolved crimes through DNA. The DNA that was recovered from Katie's body went into the, the DNA database into CODIS. And unfortunately, we didn't get a CODIS hit. And then there's the party, full of potential suspects. From day one, investigators have been trying to track every person down. And a lot of them had left, and they had scattered all over the state. One by one, every male in attendance that evening is ruled out. People were very cooperative. I don't think we had anybody that refused. If we asked them, can we take a DNA sample, they were fine with it. Outside of Katie's boyfriend, it was not difficult at all to get DNA from the people at the party. All roads are pointing back to one person. And it's not just police that think so. Many people believed that Joe was the killer. He and Katie had argued. She walks away from the party in the middle of the night. He goes after her. They argue again. He kills her and hides her body. Police have had enough. The days of waiting for Joe's DNA are over. It's time to think outside of the box. And Captain Jones has an idea. We had secured all the bedding from Katie's room, and we knew from Joe's statement that they had a sexual encounter before the party. So we sent that bedding to the lab, and hopefully we'll get a sample of Joe from the bedding. It's an ingenious plan that just might work. Police anxiously wait for the results. That male DNA that they extracted from Katie's bedding did not match what we collected from the homicide scene. So at that point, we realized, well, you know what, it's probably not Joe. But they have to be sure. So they communicate the results to Joe's attorney. And Joe finally agrees to willingly give up his DNA. It was agreed that we could go to northern New Mexico, meet with Joe, and take the sample at a police department. Days later, the results come back. Joe Stoltz is officially ruled out. The reason that he didn't want to give us his DNA sample was because he'd had sex with Katie that afternoon, and he was afraid that his DNA sample was going to be found on her body or in her body. Still, for investigators and Katie's parents, Joe's actions following the murder are hard to comprehend. I'll never understand why Joe wouldn't give up a DNA sample right at the very beginning. I'll never understand that. It's a question I can't answer. Had he just given up the DNA in the very beginning, I mean, we would have excluded him within a week, two weeks. Unfortunately, it cost us, you know, several months. With Joe now off their radar, police must consider a bone-chilling scenario. Once we found out that Joe's DNA didn't match, we were pretty certain that it had to be a random attack. Katie's killer could be anyone and even more troubling. We knew that we had a possibility that we either had a serial killer or there was somebody in the beginning stages of becoming a serial killer. The pressure to catch this guy is intense. Investigators can't take anything for granted. 
The night that Katie was killed, she was wearing a ring that her boyfriend Joe had bought her. And we knew from talking to several witnesses that she was wearing that ring when she was at the party. Uh, when we discovered the body, we couldn't find that ring. So what happened to this ring and Katie's other jewelry? The killer could have taken her jewelry as either a trophy or a souvenir, a memento of the encounter. Could have just been a, an opportunity just to make some money afterwards. If that's the case, perhaps the ring might resurface. We checked all the pawn shops in all the surrounding areas here. and um, He didn't pawn any of the jewelry items. It's a dead end, but it's not the only clue in the desert. There's another long shot. When they processed the area where Katie was located, they found uh, pretty clear tire impressions that they felt like was probably the suspect vehicle. And the truck actually backed over this bush here, which was, which was a lot smaller back then. And, and his tire tracks came right, right on both sides of the bush. Match the type of car to the tire marks, and it could bring police one step closer to finding their killer. We were able to get the brand name and then reach out to the company that produced the tires. The manufacturer um, said that the size of the tires would probably be found on a, a smaller size truck. So that gave us a pretty good idea that we were looking for a truck. It's a good jumping off point. We pulled every plate that had been run by law enforcement the night that Katie died, and then throughout that Sunday. But none of the plates belonged to anyone driving a small truck. We weren't able to, to get any viable leads off the tires. Not to mention, there are millions of small-sized trucks out on the road. Basically, you're looking for a needle in a haystack. For Detective Myers, it's a bit discouraging. In this case, there was only so much we could do. We didn't know. Were we dealing with somebody that was from here? Or were they just passing through? And we knew if we were just dealing with someone that was just passing through that, you know, we had even less of a chance of catching this guy. Or maybe not. Almost a full year after Katie's murder, investigators get word that 1,700 miles away in Wisconsin, Green Bay investigators are dealing with a strikingly similar crime. So similar, in fact, the authorities in Green Bay give the Doña Anna County Sheriff's Office a call. They had a, a case where a female had been strangled, raped, and then set on fire. But there's one major difference, and it's a big one. This victim had survived. If Green Bay investigators can solve their case, they just might solve Katie's, too. Get more Nightmare Next Door online at investigation.discovery.com. On the surface, Green Bay, Wisconsin, and Las Cruces, New Mexico have about as much in common as snowsuits and bikinis. But they do share a disturbing pattern of violence. Two women, raped, strangled, and set on fire. When I heard about the Green Bay case, I believed we were dealing with a serial killer. You go from a cut and dry case of a boyfriend and girlfriend having a fight and she winds up dead, to now the possibility that this killer is a serial killer 
traveling the country. And his path of terror may have started in Wisconsin before migrating south to Las Cruces. Luckily, the authorities in Green Bay have an edge on solving the case. Their victim survived by pretending to be dead. I think the young woman in in Green Bay was an absolutely remarkable young woman. To be able to wait until they drove off and then put the fire out and crawl for help. It's an astonishing story of survival. And I also remember when I found out that she lived, I remember being a little envious of the fact that she lived and Katie had not. The victim tells police it was two Hispanic men that attacked her. It's a revelation that surprises investigators. In the Green Bay case, there were two suspects. It's pretty rare when you get two people willing to do something like that to a person. But in Katie's case, Detective Myers is convinced there was only one man. We got to go by what our evidence was, which is consistent with one person. Still, it's not out of the realm of possibility that Katie's killer has recruited an accomplice. Even though we only had one DNA sample, we thought that there was a possibility that one of them could be Katie's killer. The surviving victim is able to provide a detailed composite sketch of both assailants. Green Bay authorities had been posting them up, and a dairy farmer realized that it was one of his workers. The farmer identifies the men as Juan Nieto and Gregorio Morales. And this case is about to hit even closer to home. One of the individuals had relatives that lived in Las Cruces, and he had, in fact, visited them on on several occasions. It can't be a coincidence. The two cases appear to be connected. There's only one way to know for sure, DNA. But there's a problem. Once these individuals realized that people were beginning to suspect that they had committed that crime, they decided to flee Green Bay. Investigators begin a massive manhunt. And finally, after weeks on the run, several anonymous tips lead police to the suspect's whereabouts. One of the individuals was captured in Roswell and the other was captured in Atlanta, Georgia. All that's left is a DNA test to see if one of the Green Bay attackers is also Katie's killer. But the results are a disappointment. Neither of those individuals' DNA matched our DNA profile. The cases aren't connected. When I heard that the DNA in the Green Bay case didn't match Katie's DNA, I was was disappointed. I was so hopeful that we would have resolution. To make matters worse, it's the last good lead in the case for two years. And it's not for lack of trying. Countless times we would would go back through the photographs pretty routinely, go over statements again just to see if we had missed anything. There's three boxes of case reports in there that we would review just to to make sure we weren't missing anything or, or something slipped through the cracks. But nothing brings them closer to finding Katie's killer. Katie's murder was very hard for the university, and it was very hard for the community. This was a a case that just seemed to drag on and on and on. We had a community wondering if it was ever going to be solved. We had investigators, ourselves included, wondering, how are we going to solve this? Are we going to ever solve this? The lack of progress is agonizing for those closest to Katie. I remember there being a point where I thought it might not be solved. I remember I reached a point 
that I thought we may never know. But that doesn't stop the Sepich family from continuing their quest for justice. A lot of times, someone is murdered, and in three years, they're forgotten. Katie's never been forgotten. People have worked tirelessly. People have cared. People's hearts have been opened. Katie's mother really was the driving force. She fought to keep the media's attention on her daughter's case. She fought to keep the police and sheriff's departments working on it. And she fights to keep Captain Jones on the case as well, even as his retirement date looms on the horizon. There was a time that I was going to retire, and I had talked to the Sepages, and they had asked me if I would consider staying for a while longer to see if we could solve this. And so I agreed. I, I stayed for a couple of years longer. But after fighting the good fight for over two years, a death in the family forces Captain Jones to finally say goodbye to the force and pursuing Katie's killer. Retiring before this case was, was solved was difficult to do. And although I was not actively working it, I still thought about it every day. It's just something that's, that becomes part of you. With Detective Myers now at the helm of the investigation, he's even more determined to bring Katie's killer to justice. And he knows this case will most likely be solved by one thing and one thing only. Our best evidence was was clearly the DNA. That was always the, the reason why you never gave up hope entirely, because we knew if this guy and this DNA ever ended up in CODIS, we knew we had him. You know, we, we would get our guy eventually. And that's exactly what happens. On December 18th, 2006, three and a half years after Katie's murder, Detective Myers gets the news he's been waiting for. We got the standard CODIS letter to us saying, hey, we got a potential match on your killer's DNA. And it was, you know, totally out of left field. It was like time almost stood still. It's news J.N. Sepich has been desperate for. I'll never forget that day. I answered the phone and he said, Mrs. Sepich, are you sitting down? He said, we have a DNA match. I was thinking, good. Good. We'll stop him. He can't hurt anybody else. And Katie will have justice. And the timing is almost poetic. Everybody knows Christmas is going to be Monday, but a lot of people don't know that Katie's birthday is Tuesday, December 26th. She would have been 26 years old. So for our family, it is a very fitting birthday present for our daughter, Kate. Investigators can now put a name to Katie's killer. The hit identified Gabriel Avila as a match for the DNA that we recovered from our crime scene. Gabriel Avila is a convicted felon, currently serving time in a New Mexico jail for aggravated burglary and assault. Gabriel Avila had actually been arrested three months after Katie was killed. An arrest that exposes a major flaw in the system. We would have had a match in three months rather than three and a half years. A flaw Katie's family vows to fix. We have this incredible scientific tool of DNA and we're not using it. After three long years of not knowing who or why, 22-year-old Katie Sepich was viciously raped and murdered. Police finally have the answer 
to one of those questions. Who? When I heard that they had a match and they knew who Katie's killer was, I was stunned. And to find out that he's sitting in a prison cell someplace, and he was sitting there right in front of us, it was very hard. It's especially hard when investigators learn Gabriel Avila was within their grasp shortly after Katie's murder. Gabriel Avila, turns out, was arrested like three months after Katie was killed. In my opinion, attempting to get a second victim. Murdering Katie Sepich three months earlier may have only just wet his appetite. He broke into the, to the girl's apartment and it wasn't until he was inside that he was confronted by not one person, but two people. His potential victim had a roommate. And that th- totally threw him off his game and he panicked and, and left before he was able to complete the assault. The two women quickly called police and Avila is arrested, fleeing the scene. Looking side by side at the two attacks, Detective Myers can't help but notice Avila's tactics were evolving. Interestingly enough, he strangled Katie Sepich. This time, he brought a knife. I think he realized that it wasn't easy to strangle somebody. So, you know, he changed his MO a little bit to make it easier for him to gain control and, and kill his victim. After his arrest, It should have been an open and closed case, but it turns out to be anything but. There was a huge delay in that process because he was arrested for a pretty heinous offense, but he was given a bond. And once out on bond, Avila decides he has no intentions of going to jail. And at that point, he ran. Gabriel Avila is on the lam for 14 months before he's once again captured by authorities. It's at that time his DNA is finally entered into the system. If Avila's DNA would have been taken at the time of his arrest, we would have saved almost three years of this investigation. But Detective Myers can't dwell on the past. He needs to find out all he can about Gabriel Avila before he confronts him. And the key to all of this stuff was talking to his wife to fill in all the pieces of the puzzle and fill in the pieces she does. Avila's ex-wife tells Myers not only did her husband own a small-sized truck, but after he skipped town, she found something unusual inside it. In one of the drink holders, she found a diamond ring, a white golden diamond ring. And it wasn't her size, so she knew it wasn't for her. It's Katie's ring. The diamond ring Joe bought her all those years ago. Luckily for us, she kept it. And that was just another link between him and Katie. Armed with enough evidence to keep him in jail for good, Myers arranges to meet face-to-face with Avila in order to answer one final question. Why? And so now we had to go to the prison and get him to talk to us about something much worse than he's already sitting in prison for. The plan is getting Avila talking and then confront him about the rape and murder. We kept it very vague, read him as Miranda writes, introduced ourselves just to kind of get him comfortable with us. And when the moment is right... We brought up the Katie Sepich case, and we told him we had a DNA match between him and Katie, and I gave him the ring. And at that point, you could see him kind of shrug, and he asked, where'd you get that from? 
Detective Myers offers Avila a chance to come clean. And I told him, if you want any hope of salvation, you need to tell the truth. And that's when he told us the most of the truth as we could get out of him. And the truth is hard to hear. He, he told us that he, he did go into that neighborhood to buy cocaine. As he's driving out of the neighborhood, he sees Katie walking down the street, drives up, asks her if she needs a ride. She says no. So he just waits, watches her go to the, to the house, walks up to her, and uh, at that point, he attacks her. And from there, there was no turning back. And then he says, when I was done, it was like, oh, now what? And so at that point, he decides he's got to kill her, and he uh, manually strangles her. He then drives her lifeless body to the landfill and attempts to cover his tracks. And I think he just thought that he could light her on fire and that she would just be totally cremated. But that's where he was wrong. And in the end, it was Katie who got revenge. Katie had fought so hard for her life that she had the skin and blood of the man that killed her under her fingernails. Katie really, in essence, solved her own crime by trying to fight this guy off. In May of 2007, Gabriel Avila pleads guilty to the kidnapping, rape, and murder of Katie Sepich. He is currently serving 69 years in prison. For J.N. Sepich, nothing will ever bring her daughter back. But at least now, she has a small piece of her again. After the case was resolved, they gave me her ring. I love having this ring. This ring means a great deal to me. It's part of Katie. But happiness soon turns to frustration. When Gabriel Avila was arrested, there was no requirement to take a DNA sample from somebody arrested for a crime like that. I was stunned. It's illegal in New Mexico and almost every other state to take DNA upon arrest. But why is this the case? The Sepich family wants answers. We take fingerprints, we take mugshots. We have this incredible scientific tool of DNA and we're not using it like a fingerprint. They vow to make something positive out of their daughter's murder. We went to our state legislator and we got a law passed in New Mexico that allows DNA to be used like fingerprints to be taken upon arrest and uploaded into the state and national database and it's called Katie's Law. Katie's Law has now been passed in 23 states. The law now in New Mexico, it shortens the amount of time by months and maybe years that we're being notified of a violent offender. And basically it saves lives and it saves people from being victims of violent crime. Life has for the most part returned to normal for the students attending New Mexico State University. But the murder of Katie Sepich has had a lasting effect. It's taught them a valuable lesson. But this lesson wasn't learned in any classroom. People can be, can be wonderful, but people can be truly evil as well. It's not an issue of who you know. It's, it can be an issue of just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Acast anbefaler.
Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skidt af alle de der podcasts og forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmakker.